Hey guys, um, welcome to podcast one forty four. Um, just learning how this works, so be prepared for a lot of mess ups today. Uh, we got Dexter there beside me for some reason. Um, we got DB and we got Carrie Kreitz. So welcome back to podcast one forty four with uh, Mr. Tom Patterson. A little bit later here, we're excited to have him. No spoilers. Um, no spoilers. We have we have all that memo <laughs> stuff already. Don't worry about that. Um, how's everything going, guys? It's been some time. I think feels like I got a week off last week. Yeah, I missed last week too, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been, it's yeah. been a while. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's been good. <laughs> hey, league league started. Hey, bowling league, league started. Yeah. Yeah, league, yeah. Right. All your leagues. How, how on was Thursday your guys' August. first week? You know what? It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I, uh, I had a great pre-bowl the first week, and then I uh, I shot almost a thousand triple on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah, it was played really good on Sunday. It was pretty good. Yeah, you were like I, uh, 12, 1250 or something, were you, Tim? Twelve sixty-five. And you know what? We can actually maybe Punish bring me. it up. Dex, I played Daryl. Daryl had eight plows and, and eleven hits on the middle, so I beat Daryl like pretty good. And then, uh, and then I played Dexter last game, and Dexter hung corner and missed a, a corner twice in nine. And I was like, wow, no, this is I just like... I missed a corner once in nine, and it was, was because like, wow, somebody this, literally this... walked three quarters of my into and, my lane. And I was like, wow, this Frickin... is just like the tour finals. I bang out and I slaughter him. And I was like... <laughs> no, no. Oh, man, that... Ma- that Matt, is like that a segue, Tim? Is that what you're going for? That's yeah, a, yeah. That's well, a painful moment, hey? No, honestly, yeah. So friggin' guy walks three quarters of the way into my lane and like, yeah, and costs me the match. Okay. Makes All me right. so bad. I, yeah, I was unimpressed. But that it, it is what it is. It's it's leak. It's like no spoilers. It's been out for a day or whatever. And yeah, yeah. Once once it went live, there's no such thing as spoilers. Watch it if you haven't. Yeah. So, but but while hey, while we're talking about Kyle Young, congratulations on your perfect game yesterday, buddy. Yeah, Kyle Young with a Oh, yeah, Kyle Young threw one, too. I didn't see that one. Nice. Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah. And he was Where wearing at? a headband, Dexter. Was he? Uh, yeah, Dakota. He's at nice. Dakota, I believe. Yeah, on their, on their pro league there. Kyle, Kyle's been playing super well, and obviously I think he needed a little bit of redemption from 2016. So, uh... <laughs> When he got roasted. So Oh yeah, he, oh there's a video out there, Daryl. He he lost about fifty thousand dollars with one shot. But I mean, oh I remember that, that one, yeah, from before. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. But you know, he learned from it, right? And he threw a better ball. I'm sure so. he didn't. I'm sure he didn't make that last night. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, no, he gets a pat. He probably gets a pat on the back, right? But uh, you know, um, Kyle played really well. So since but we're being, on the topic of perfect games, Katie Wells with the perfect game. Yeah, yes. congratulations. The NBC. Man. What a it's bomb so... that last ball was, eh? Do you know what? Oh. I don't. I thought. I thought she thought that she missed the middle there, and she walked away. It right? totally looked like that, yeah. And I was like, "What a walk off, right?" And then, <laughs> and, then, yeah, yeah. and I looked back yeah, at it. It wasn't like, the most confident strike, no. but it was more than enough. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. Mm. How hard is it to play after a perfect game, eh? Like, I mean, let, let's be honest. If we're doing that in a qualifying set of anything, I want that in game seven, game eight. Something like that, and like, man, it's gonna be so hard. But hey, she she bounced back. Like she had a struggle the next game, and then she bounced back and played great the last three. So, kudos to her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's it's tough playing after that, that huge high. 
Amazing. Well, good for her. We don't. We obviously don't know. Carrie can probably tell us how that feels, but I've always played decent enough after a perfect game. But there's yeah. plenty well, of three hundreds I mean, I've shot buck eighties after. Maybe we we will we'll, we'll talk to her to Tom later. But why is that? Like, why did you have that mental let letdown? Why, why can't the guy go back to back fours? I don't know. It's just weird, right? I, I I think you gotta go and find a way to mentally release all that extra adrenaline and everything that's in you after that moment. So it just it's a different mindset after you you have that adrenaline and then you have that break. And I'm this is from a guy who ha, like hasn't thrown a perfect game, but like you know you, you throw your first four hundred and you see people do the same sort of thing, and you have to you kind of have to build a routine. You know, shoot a a four hundred or a perfect game or something like that, and then just go for a walk, decompress get rid of all that extra energy and then go back to going back to the same thought process you had before. You gotta, I guess you I did. To, you right. have to stop focusing about on the results as well. Right. Cause you know, you're playing that, that 12th ball, you're focused on throwing a strike. You need to go mm-hmm. back to focusing on execution again afterwards too. And that, that's something that people need to remember. I mean, I started the league on Thursday night. You guys were next to me and I had eight bagger corner strike and then plowed an 11 for three ninety six. But then the very next game, I did the exact same thing. I had 130 in eight, you know, and it was just like, well, how does this happen? It's just so weird that that happens. And you feel that you're standing up there in the right moment. You feel like you're throwing the same shot, but there's just, there's some sort of difference that is clearly happening that it would be nice to have that secret sauce to figure out why and what. I, yeah, sometimes, uh, adrenaline, obviously I also think we just become complacent. Like you start thinking about it and it's like, it's no big deal. You're kind of in a roll and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm not really focused here. Right. You know, you feel like you're kind of complacent in that way. Um, I, I do have to take a shout out with KULs. Uh, Daniel Drodge looked really good in my shirt. Uh, he was right beside it all the time. I got a lot of texts about it. Uh, he's a lot skinnier and taller than I am for sure. And has hair. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I guess before we bring in Tom as our special guest or whatever, let's uh, let's just do a quick recap for the Tour Championships stuff that's come out so far. Obviously, there's been a couple interviews that have come out for the first two matches, and only the first match has debuted. Um, the second match comes out tomorrow at 5 o'clock Alberta time, and then um, there'll be another interview Friday, and then another episode on Saturday, and then every weekday after that, there'll be something coming out. So Saturday will be the only weekend day that we're going to use. And then, yeah, all the way up to the Autumn Open, there will be something from 5-Pin Universe and the WCBT every weekday. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Um, Daryl done a great job with the interviews. I really liked yeah, seeing him at the beginning. Yeah. Um, it, it, they're well done, for sure, and, and good questions. So. Yeah, I think everything, everything was good. I was so like jacked up when you saw the opening trailer, right, with the, with the so guy's face the and they were spinning. It just, yeah, the hype video. It's awesome. I can't believe we all kept a straight face, honestly. Except I mean, for minus o- Yeah, OC. You can see OC struggling. And apparently he's been ripped apart for throwing his towel over his shoulder so aggressively. So, but, <laughs> but yeah, I'm impressed that everyone held a, a straight face for all of that, too. It was awesome. Really well done. Do we want to do maybe a viewing on here for everybody if somebody hasn't seen it? Yeah, sure. maybe the, tra- the trailer okay. or something. Yeah, yeah, the hype video here. I'll see if I can pull it up here for everybody. It might take a couple seconds, but um, 
Yeah. Hey, I thought I thought Tim was running this, Carrie. What are we? What are you doing? What are you doing, Carrie? Tim was running this. Sorry, 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 adding extras, adding extras. Yeah, no, no. This is this is. He's my Vanna White. He's doing a great job, guys. This is over and above. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because uh, my internet's not the greatest, this will take a little bit, so uh, we can do some more banter while this is happening. What about just quickly uh, pro league stuff? Obviously, we uh, that's coming up. Tim, you busted hard on the schedule for pro league, and uh, we nailed down yeah, the first two yes. weeks for sure. Yeah, um, nailed down the first two weeks of September twenty fifth and October second. So that's uh, wicked. Thanks for doing all that. And obviously, you've got a bunch of requests and changes and. Uh, scheduling conflicts that we'll work through that we probably knew was going to come. So, uh, but the first two weeks are locked in, loaded. Uh, everybody's looking for that. So, people, if you haven't sent in, obviously franchise fees or information, get a hold of us, and we'll uh, we need to we need to start getting some things sorted out there. Obviously, shirts are on the way. We know the first two weeks you'll be, you'll have it. It's just sort of the process that things are taken, and then the rest of them I know that are being worked on. All the graphics, all the overlays, the tech side of things. Carrie, we're meeting here, so. We know that we got a date to crunch time. Uh, we're getting things going, and we're super excited and inspired. That obviously uh, a little bit of a later start than we wanted, but we're we're getting her going. And it's going to be it's going to be good to go. Yeah. It uh, scheduling, yeah. Uh, I yeah, it's uh, it's a fun job. We knew this going to be a little bit uh, a little bit tedious. Uh, it might have less weeks, but more games in each week. Um, so I'll take a look at that. Um, for those teams that are listening. If, if there's any weeks that work for you and not everybody will be there, but, you know, 7 out of 8 will be there or 6 out of 8 will be there, that is okay. If your coach can't be there, that is okay. Just That's the I'm, reason we have an expanded roster. Right. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm finding things after the date where I just – I wanted to strangle Curtis. I love Curtis to death. Dunas, but I, <laughs> I was like, Curtis, boy, you're lucky I love you. Like, I was like – Yeah. Right? Okay? It was just like – uh, people asking for dates off in May, unless it's for the traditional, that is the playoffs. So be prepared to play those dates. There's, Do not take any trips to Malta. Yeah. <laughs> or you're not playing on your team. And, and, and Dex, you had a good point there, right? That's why we expanded the roster to eight players. So yeah. there's one player that's not going to be eligible every week, right? If, if they're all available. Yeah. And there's two, there's two subs. Remember, you're only playing with five players. So there's going to be times that people only have five. You'll be allowed to bring in your emergency spare. Two emergency spares will be allowed to come in one time each. Um, but like there, there should be enough players. So if you have a, if you have one player missing, please don't request that date off. Hopefully, there's a time that that player can be at eight or six or whatever magic number is for each player. But mm -hmm. again, that's why we expanded the roster. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, spoiler alert: Dream Crushers are going to not have Caitlyn the first one, right? Because Caitlyn has ball and something else. So. Um, unfortunately, we don't have her, so I mean, we're gonna have to run with one girl. We're a six and two team, right? And uh, so it, it is what it is. But that's that's part of the scheduling, right? So and and your first uh, week, I mean, you may not want to bring in an emergency spare on the first week because you might, you know, later on down the road, you might need somebody who actually need a spot. And obviously, you if Katie's there, you'll roll with her for the for the two games. And that's the exactly. yeah. I mean, that's I mean, the position the teams will have to make decisions on when they want to use those spares. Um, and, and what so, that looks so, like. So what is the rule on, on, you maybe can let people know on emergency spares. So I think the emergency spare, you have two emergency spares that can come in for one day each to play a maximum of two games. They can't, right? So if you're on a game day, on a match day, you're playing two games in that match day, then you can bring in the spare to play those two games, yeah. right? 
no more than two games, right? But if it's a match day, you need to bring them in and play, and they're only one game available, then that's they're only playing the one game. They're not coming back for the following week to play a second game. So yeah, again, they're available you, for one one week each one of them. That's right. And if you're playing yeah. two games, then they get to play two games. Yeah. So we'll clarify that. Send out you know you know some clarification, but. Yeah, so people will be strategic on using their spares too. If they want them to be there for a two gamer or or just a day that you absolutely need them and you just need the one game to get covered. So, yeah. um, you know, yeah. Yeah, jerseys. So you don't have to get jerseys for emergency spares. I don't think that's mandatory. Um, you know, again, if you if you want to, that's fine. If you're great, some teams honestly are not naming their emergency spares now until they need them. And that's not a that's not a rule of the league to name your emergency spares now, pre- prior smart. to season start. You can name the emergency spares whenever you want and whenever you need them. There has been some teams that have named them, um, but that's fine. That doesn't mean that they, yeah, the other teams have to. That's that's not a rule. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's play this uh, promo video by the WCBT and Fragment Media, and then we'll uh, move on to our special guest. Perfect. I'm focused I've been watching for the omens I've been listening to everything you said It's been running through my head Locked and loaded I got the feeling that you know it Yeah, I've only just begun I won't stop until it's done Till you're broken Welcome to the fire Bigger they are, harder they fall I want to give props to Mitch for having the absolute coldest stare. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like there, there's no soul left in that guy. What, what was that called on uh, Zoolander? What's the look called? Oh, blue Steel. <laughs> blue or, Steel. Blue Steel or is it Magnum? No, it, it was Magnum normally, and then he hit Blue Steel. That's right. There, there's, there's only one other guy that has a scarier stare, and that's DeGrazia when he's bowling. So Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I can't, I just can't even picture John with a serious face too. So I was really impressed with that. OC couldn't hold it together. <laughs> no, we, we we did have we did have some practice time. So yeah, it was it was pretty fast. But it was a fragment media always knocks it out of the park. So I, I have to say that they do a great job. All right, you guys all ready? Sure. Yeah. Bud. Cool. All right. I just yeah, I'm just okay. We'll bring our special guest in now. Perfect, Mr. Hey, Tom, Tom Patterson. Whoa. We changed the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. You were topless before, so I'm kind of glad that you did, Tom. <laughs> thank you. I saw you were in red, girl, so I thought I need the red shirt. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> What is the shirt from? That's obviously YBC. Oh, this is from the BC Youth Bowling School. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's that's probably a good interlude. I mean, I know you were busy over the summer um, with with bowling schools. Obviously, how great was it to have have them back in both BC and Saskatchewan? Uh, I know, obviously, 
Uh, you ran the one in Saskatchewan, and how did that go all work out? You know what? Every school works out fabulously. Yeah. Really a wonderful experience, and uh, that's the beginning and end of it. You know, we have a, a wonderful staff, and uh, in BC, it's a lot less work for me because all I ultimately do is show up um, and help orchestrate the operation of the school that's better in the online and classroom stuff. But um, ultimately, it's, you know, we're very fortunate to have the kind of people that volunteer year after year to come in. We always bring in new bodies as well, because I believe we need to spread what we do to as many regions of our country and our province as we can. So there's always a a new body or two that wander in for us. Uh, your guy Tyler came this year along with Lynn Howell. Yeah. And uh, Tyler just, he's incredible. Lynn is incredible. Tyler is incredible. Tyler has, uh, well, he's, he's really raised the game for himself, obviously, in terms of how proficient he is as an athlete, but his ability to communicate his knowledge mm -hmm. and to connect with the youth is really quite phenomenal. It's, it's a, he's a total package in every way, sense, any way you could look at it. So very fortunate to have him with us. I can see that being a, a great spinoff for anything when you run your pro-ams, et cetera, right? Yeah. Tournaments that you're so. Yeah, he's great at everything he touches. And yeah. anything that we ask him to do or whatever, he goes full force into it. He's, yeah, he's just. And, and you know what? Lynn floats around. He's not quite as quick as Muhammad Ali because he doesn't float like a, he doesn't float like a butterfly. <laughs> but his messages do sting like a bee. He can make some very good points with the youth that really register. And he's excellent at, at being able to connect with, with you picks up very quickly what they need and all the rest of it right yeah yeah lynn was always a staple when we were in bowling school too and he was always so helpful and he still is right yeah. and, and uh yeah maybe not as quick as muhammad ali with his feet but he is with he is with his mouth <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah he, yep. he can talk a mile a minute, but it's all good stuff. Yeah. Does he throw any balls think, when he's out there? Like he he has he's not throwing many balls at all or moving, is he? Like he's yeah. Is what I refer to as broken body parts. Yeah. So, yeah. No, he didn't. And at one time he wanted to, but I, I heard he threw like ten balls. The balls. They, yeah. He he tried to throw in the gauntlet. Uh, but yeah, he's got broken body parts. He needs to let them heal and get well, you know? Yeah. So his patience for taking time to get well physically, is, <laughs> that's a work in progress. This to all of us, yeah. <laughs> so how many, how many participants, uh, Tom, at both of the camps did you have? Well, in uh, BC, they had 28, which is 30 downs from the norm. They're, they usually, usually hover between 50-ish and 55. 
Saskatchewan, we, we uh, consider ourselves full at 60 to 70, somewhere in there. We had 40. We had 40 kids that were here for all four days. We had another eight kids that joined us for three days rather than the four days. And we also made an option for them to stay at home if they wanted to or with relatives, et cetera, if they were from a town. And those configurations were really just about a cost perspective thing. It costs a lot of money. Um, I know Ontario charges more than we do. We charged $410 for the complete experience. And uh, in my mind's eye, that's a lot of money, albeit for four days. Uh, hundred bucks a day, that's a pretty good deal. But uh, regardless, it, it's a difficult number for some of our uh, youth. Anyway, uh, it is what it is, right? Well, it's good that you're finding alternatives to to make it a little bit more accessible financially. Yeah, um, that that that's it's good. But you're right, four hundred bucks for a weekend is is pretty inexpensive. Yeah, when you're including accommodations and food and all that stuff. And, and we got, you know, being in Regina, we got to use Golden Mile, we got mm -hmm. to use uh, Glen Cairn and Nortown. So. Three of the four bowling centers we were able to move the kids to. And oh, nice! You move around. Yeah, and it gives them, an, you know, another opportunity to experience what bowling in the different centers are, mm -hmm. and how to make adjustments. I always remember when we were at uh, in Saskatoon. There, you would take us over to KG for a day, and yeah. we'd, we'd start bowling for a little while, and then you would, was it? You either stripped all the oil or you just oiled the, oil, crap, oil. Out of it. Oil yeah. the crap out of it. Now they won't let us do that. So, That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but Golden Mile uses the machine. It should be fine. Yeah. So uh, anyway, they, we don't do that. But by changing bowling centers, um, that helps us get a feel totally. for what it's like being in a different place. Yeah. yeah. So how many coaches do you need to bring in? What's the per bowl or ratio tom or we we try and work with one instructor for every three people. nice so you and got a lot of coaches coming in too. yeah and then we have pros that come in so uh that number gets reduced somewhat right because a pro will be connected with three or four other youth uh, instructor groups so that number can get crunched down split in half sometimes, right? Uh, mm -hmm. This year was particularly difficult bringing in uh, instructors. Uh, other commitments, I guess, by many of them, but still uh, the ancestors were there. It's really nice when, when Len and Tracy are both there. Oftentimes Len's work doesn't allow him to come, but uh, Len is, wow. He, he's got energy to spare when he's working with the kids, and he's he's right there. He's he's uh, he's a go-getter with it. And Tracy is, you know, Tracy's a teacher. And when I watch her work, it just makes me smile on the inside because I see how calmly she goes about doing her task and the compassion she has for what she's doing as well. So, 
Now, um, obviously, I've been fortunate enough to go to the bowling school a few times, but uh, I always found Tracy always worked with the higher average bowlers, right? Because she's good at facilitating and and yeah. working and speaking in that. And uh, and Lenny d- prefers working with uh, the developmental bowlers more, right? Well, this um, year, this year, Tim, he was working with the higher average. Okay. And uh, we just really did great. And and this year, you know, when I speak of higher average, we're talking uh, the 200 to 220 average group, right? right? A couple of exceptions of people that were 240-ish. But by and large, most of those higher average kids uh, were younger this year, and they were hovering around over the 200 hump, but not much beyond 230. That's all right, yeah. Um, yeah, I always found them really both really good at all that stuff. And, uh, what about, uh, Akira? Akira shot the first 400 ever in bowling school, right? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, we wanted her to have, (laughs) it happened on the Sunday and uh, I'm terribly time sensitive for parents wanting to get home and, uh, it happened on the Sunday in the afternoon. We try to wrap things up between two and three. Um, and I knew that Kira wanted to play one more game. Who wouldn't want to play one more game after they had a 400 or a 450, or right? And so we were able to squeeze one more game in and still wrap up by three. So <laughs> that was that was excellent. It was a win-win for us. But yep. Yeah, that was, she throws with, uh, well, she's she just well ahead of her age group. She mm-hmm. competes at a level that is beyond her age, without, without doubt. And her, her execution is every bit as quality-wise. So what did she shoot? What did she shoot her game after the 400? That was what our banter was before. Um, I think she uh, helped Len and Tracy. What do you think? What was it? Just under two hundred, or did she just sweep over two? I get. I'm moving around two oh nine. Thanks, Tracy. So, so yeah, as we asked, just Tom, your thoughts. You go. Also on the middle step, right? It was, um, yeah. Afterwards, I asked her, so, what do you think? And, and she didn't say a whole lot. And I just simply added that it's different, isn't it? And she said, yes, yes. But it's a good experience. Yes, yes. <laughs> she just ate up everything, which is typical of Kira. Eats up everything, wants every challenge that she can possibly experience. So, And that's, you know, that kind of passion and interest is, is going to snowball and lead you to nothing but great things Absolutely, yeah. No. Um, so I, I guess for anybody who hasn't been to the Saskatoon Bowling School or the BC one, uh, whether you're from Alberta and you go to either one of them, I think you have to go see Tom out there. Um, uh, if you look at the Alberta, the young guys, well, not young guys anymore, but people my age, they were all participating. We've all gone there, right? Um, we learned from the the amount of time on the lanes to all the the mental mental game with it, right? And 
Um, I don't think we would have been normally the same player we would be if we didn't go to Tom's school. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. It's You know what? When we get there, <laughs> it's mostly about what all our staff do with the kids, right? They, they are, by and large, uh, I may lay out the program and what we do, but it's the quality of our instructors that really make the thing work. Yeah. So did you have some further thoughts, Tom, on uh, after the 400, uh, why that is sometimes that we have a mental or a physical relapse after a game so high? And what would be your, do you have any moments that yourself have had that experience? Uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, <laughs> I think it simply we make it more complicated. There are exceptions to the rule when we are in the zone. And the best case scenario I think of is Lynn Howell when he had, what did he have? Out of 43 frames, he had 38 strikes, did he? Mm -hmm. I can't, I'm not real up on all the stats, but he was truly in the zone. And when he threw a 400, he still had a I3 afterwards, right? And throwing a, a 300 after a 400 is, is not even close to impossible. It's, it's not difficult. And the skills of the game haven't changed any. You know, it, it, nothing's changed. The only change is that we've complicated in our mind's eye. So, uh, solve that riddle. <laughs> and <laughs> you're going to be on your way to being successful when you have a 400 and being more consistent. Now, you know, for, for some of us, that hurdle will be one particular aspect. For others, it may be something else, right? It, right. It's not necessarily, there's no carbon copy uh, template kind of thing that's a one size fits all answer. But I believe we seem to make it more complicated in our own individual so what's, way. What's the threshold, guys? Is it a 375? Is it a 400? Like I'm just I'm going down an angle of a stats, um, you know, package, and I know that's something we'll talk about, Tim, is is stats. But isn't that a cool stat to know? Like, what's the average game after somebody throws a 400? Is the average game in in TPC or sorry, a WCBT? You know, how many 400s have we had in WCBT? Mm -hmm. You know, and then what's the score after? Or so what's the threshold? You know what I mean? To to start I, calculating. I Pretty sure JB could probably pull that up. <laughs> yeah. JB, are you out there, bud? Like, we want to know. I, I think it all depends, honestly, on the situation and and how many times you've been there before. Uh, if you're playing just a regular Thursday night league, you shoot a, a 350 or 360, you'd probably be okay if it's casual and there's no, no stress you, to have something similar back to it. But if you're playing the tour and you're playing – game seven and you need to shoot something good for double and you had to shoot 370 or 400 you know your adrenaline's running for the last game right so i think that all changes everything really that'd be just interesting to know what the what the average score is after shoots you know 380 or 390 and above yeah you know what yeah. i have uh in my book, <laughs> sad. <laughs> in my book, one of the statistics that I put together uh, used all the data I could take from the Regina Classic Tournament, from all their qualifying rounds, 
all the uh, qualifying rounds I could get from the Autumn Open, all the qualifying rounds I could get from the TBC. I put all those together, and I think what I had was, these, if memory serves me correctly, about a thousand different entries. And I sorted them based on average compilations, right? And here's a few goodies, statistically speaking, all right? Um, I broke it down from averages of 250 to 259, 250, 260 to 269, so 10, 10 point increments up to 290 plus, all right? So the average for those people in the, oh, let's take it, let's take that 250 to 259 average, right? The percentage of games that they threw that were over 300, 15% of their games were over 300. If you look at the 270, the 279, that percentage is, two, is 27%. 27%. 280, it's 30%. And for the 290-plus crowd, 46% of their games were over 300 makes sense if you're having over 290 that most of those games are going to be over the 300 mark the average high score for those average group for the 250 group 327 the average high score for the 260 it was 329 for the 270 to 279 341 for the 280 to 289 group, it was 349. And for the 290 crowd, it was 373. Hmm. The outliers, the outliers are, are the highs on the high side, the 5% of scores that are on the high side. So if you plotted them on a graph, on a, on a number line, let's say, right, those outliers were for the 280 and up crowd, the outlier were the 400, obviously, right? Not too many. Everything else fell well within their range of being capable of doing, right? So the 400s are still a unique breed. They don't go out and shoot back-to-back uh, -back 400s uh, too often. I can't think of someone that has done that, but I know that there have been. I mean, it's just common sense to think that. The percentage of games under 250. Percentage of games under 250. For the 290-plus crowd, 16% of their games. And their average low score was 225. Take the 250 crowd, the percentage of games under 250 were 49%. So if the 290 crowd only has 16% of their games under 250. I think there's a glaring statistical comparison there between the 250 and 259 average group. 49%, half of their games are under 250. So their bowling or their score production is much more volatile, right? Far less consistent. The just moving up 10 points in average though from the 250 to 259 to the 260 269 these guys are more proficient 
in that particular setting, in those particular sets of games, right, 33% uh, of their games are under 250. So that's a third of them, but that's in stark contrast to just 10, per, 10 average points below that is 49%. So there's a huge step up in the consistency of play for those bowlers that are averaging 260. The yeah. differential between a 270 to 280 average bowler and a 260 and 269 average bowler, though, is only two percentage points in terms of games under 250, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the glaring part I notice is, you know, we used to think, I don't think we think 250 is a great average anymore. I think it's no, fair no. to say we don't believe that used to go to a tournament and think, oh, if I could average 250, I, I could feel good about that. <laughs> yeah, 2,000 will get me into the cut. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's not the case anymore. Now, I think, well, if you look at the qualifying scores, right, after it's all said and done, your qualifying averages are often 270 plus. One of the things that stood out to me, statistically speaking, was what JB had done in taking all your tournaments together, right? And all he, all I used were their 40, they had to have put in 40 games of bowling to, for me to use their statistic. They had to have 400 frames, which I equated to about 40 games, all right? So, out of that, there were 195 participants in this that had 40 games of bowling. The overall average for that group was 247. That's not, not what I expected. <laughs> there were only two people, two or three, that were averaging over 280. Now, those are the cream of the crop bowling. Now, those 40 games included qualifying. It included match play games. All right? Any games that they participated in during those tournaments, which JB had uh, data for, right? Now he's got more data, and of course, I believe those numbers will rise. Okay, but ultimately speaking, so we have this inflated image that the quality of the bowler has gone up. And really, the quality of the bowlers may not have gone up. The frequency of being able to qualify has, and the more opportunities you have, the more likely your game is going to rise, and the better players are going to perform better, right? But if we just take the raw data as JB presented it, right, there's, there's a glaring opportunity to recognize that there's a real need for us to own our game and get better at what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Which leads me 
uh, to think back to some of the experiences I've witnessed with other bowlers and the idea about, well, you know, when you're working with somebody that is a 190 average bowler, they uh, are happy than a pig in a blanket to be able to just hit the middle more, right? But that same standard doesn't really work as well once they get into the 200 range. They want a little more and a little more, right? Well, just hitting the middle alone can be quite satisfying for some average groups, right? But making that step that goes beyond just hitting the middle and being consistently on the side of the middle so you can have a more productive hit requires a refinement of your game. I think JB's statistic helps identify that we've still got some work to do in terms of being to fine-tune our game, be more consistent, mm -hmm. right? And I think the statistic I showed with the 250 average group, right, 49% of their games under 250, I think that helps validate that as well from a, from a different perspective, per se, per se. So question for you, Tom. At what point in time does a bowler start looking at pocket hits as opposed to middle hit percentage? Are you a, you know, a 200%, 200 average bowler and you're hitting the middle five out of 10 times, six out of 10 times, whatever the number is, is the message to them, listen, we need to get your middle hits up to nine out of 10. But once you're at the nine out of 10 or eight and a half out of 10, we can look at the tour stats. Once you're up to a certain point, is that when you start to refine the game to go to pocket? Or is it even earlier than that when you're already at five? Don't worry about the middle. Let's look at pocket. You know, that makes sense. My question for you. Yep. Yep. I understand. I think the criteria to base your decision around, do I try and improve my shot and shoot for the pocket? Let's say, right. The number one criteria is your commitment to work on it number one criteria. Uh, I'm working with a couple of gentlemen right now who are investing their time and energy in becoming more productive in their strike range, right? They've recognized that um, they can hit the middle with the best of them, but they're not scoring as well. They feel they can go out and play um, know 12 frames in a game they feel like they can hit the middle 10 for 10 and their data would suggest that they hit the middle 80 percent 85 percent some of them it's pretty good however their average is 220 and in one case 208 i think all right so um I believe the, the first step to that hurdle, Daryl, I think, is the commitment to do it. It's to take your game beyond just being satisfied with hitting the middle takes a commitment. It's the refinement. It's one of the refinements of our sport. 
Now, you can you can get there with purposeful effort and desire to do that, or you can choose to just throw a ton of balls and hope your execution improves with a ton of balls, right? Quality over quantity, correct? So um, you can get there that way too, you like, but ultimately it all is down to commitment, right? And, and I guess that's my question, Tom, is because, you know, again, I'm asking for myself, as I looked at the tour stats and some of the middle hits, my middle hit percentage is not top 10, call it what it is. So this year, I'm consciously making an effort that I just want to pound the middle, right? I want to hit middle so I feel so darn comfortable with hitting the middle and hitting the middle and hitting the middle. At some point, I will look to refine that, but not until the, the point that I'm already hitting at a 95% moment, right? Tim mentioned me hitting, you know, plowed eight out of 11 times against him. I think I was 11 for 21 in my first two games, right? You know, and it was just, I was fine with it because I was hitting the middle and hitting the middle. And yeah, my stats are getting up. But obviously there was clearly a point or something happening that I needed to refine that approach a little bit. So that's what I'm trying to work with that. I don't want to sacrifice at the point of hitting pocket that I start now going down to a 75, 80% again. So my focus is, is still middle, but when do I start to worry about mm -hmm. the refinement? But you look at tour stacks, I mean, how many were actually over 90%? There wasn't a whole lot. But right? the, the guys that were at the 90% were the cream of the crop that were already up, that were up there. For so sure, yeah. there, there's certainly a correlation between hitting the middle as many times as possible to being a, a top-end caliber bowler, right? We, we know that. But there's so, also a point of, of head pin. We've seen stats too, how many head pins you're getting or how many splits you're getting. So there's just that line that I think would be worth discussing a little bit. So, Daryl, when would you know that you are achieving that goal of hitting the middle mark? When I'm leaving the bowling alley at the end of the night and I know that I missed the middle two times, three times, and I'm content with that. It's for me, it's contentment, right? And I'm, and I'm, and I find the wins where they lie. And if I, that week, the goal was to hit the middle as many times as possible, then I'm, then I'm good with that. Next week, I want to hit the middle and maybe now I'll refine it a little bit, right? So it's, mm -hmm. So how many weeks of, so you mentioned hitting the middle, only missing the middle two or three times in an evening, right? Yeah. That's very good. That's, that's top drawer stuff. That's very good. Being able to go through an evening and be on the middle that much, right? Just simply doing that is going to lead to a boost in your average. It would if, I mean, obviously not plowing 11 head pins, right? But then I was able to move, I moved up a whole foot. And I honestly thought about Tom Patterson, even Tim had said to me, you know, it was just pushing it and I was rolling it too much. And I was, I moved back a foot, uh, not looking to have a full an, 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 an analysis of my shot here, but I was, I was back a whole foot and I was just rolling it too much and it wasn't getting any lift. So Tim had said something to me um, after he pounded me, 340, I think. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> no problem. But, um, but then I, I moved back up the foot, and I was getting the ball out on the lane, you know, by a foot and a half and, and getting a little bit. I'm like, well, there you go. There's a, there's a difference, and I was still hitting it every time. So um, that's, that's the difference that I, you've got to, got to master now. Yeah. 
I want to be to hit. Sorry, Tom. I want to hit two or three. I want to hit ninety percent uh, week after week after week. You know, four weeks in a row, six weeks in a row, because then I have my confidence is at such a high level that I know I can hit the middle when I need to, or hit the middle in the shot. You know, it's kind of we talked last year, guys. At some point, when these two are uh, the cuts being shot are twenty two hundreds. Are we going out there and practicing, and are we just throwing balls? Or are we going out and throwing eight-game blocks and practicing shooting at 2200s? If you've never shot a 2200 in practice, how do you think that you can do it in a, in a tournament? You need to go out and, and be able to do it on a repetitive basis so that you get the confidence that you can actually achieve that goal rather than trying to do something that you've never done before. So that's where I'm at, Tom, with the middle hit, is that I want to achieve a 90%-plus middle hit percentage for four weeks. I believe that when you, I'd, I'd suggest you be open to it being 85%. I, I don't know. Jim, how often do you hit the middle? <laughs> um, I would say probably not 90, probably 85, 80, in, in the mid-80s, Gary, I would say. Gary, what about you? I'm, I'm over nine times a game for sure. Okay. So I, I just yeah, find that, it's I just find yeah. it like if you're if you're just aiming to hit the middle, I mean that's all what we plan on doing. But I think you just you lose your aggression, you lose your your finish, right? Um, I would rather I would rather miss a little bit, being more aggressive than just punching. Like I was watching Daryl punching and just not just trying to get it there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I, I would rather mm -hmm. have, I would rather miss, miss and in order to, to do the, the, yeah, I just rather be aggressive than miss. Right. So, so I think so in Daryl's case, I think you've set the goal for yourself. 90% is, is exceptional to, to get to that place. Right. I mean, if you're statistically keeping track of that and you're aiming for 90%, um, that's exceptional to get to 90% on hitting consistently uh, the middle, simply the middle, and your average will go up. I'm guessing that when you are ready to move to the next part, which is refining that line, okay, that you'll be able to cross into doing that relatively easy. It won't be difficult. Um, however, I believe your first goal is important to you. And so, so you, you achieve that goal first, and then you look to refine that, right, and become more consistent. I think if you uh, try and change course, it's like putting a horse before the wagon kind of thing, uh, and it might distract you from what you're doing. So I would say job one is uh, achieve that goal. My only suggestion on that is 90% is pretty high. Like I, I believe 85% is nice. I hit uh, the other day in league play out of the five games, I had 56 hits. You know, I played 56 frames out of the five games, but my hits were, blah, <laughs> you 
<laughs> they were uh, I don't think they were if they were 80 percent that was good so yeah uh, anyway and, it, and it's a matter of consistency but I think make the one goal first and then boogie yeah. on you look at a four game night at 85 percent you're six misses you're allowing yourself in a three game night yeah you're allowing yourself four misses to achieve that goal yep mm -hmm. yeah. uh, i like your attitude i think that's a great attitude because it's it's uh challenging yourself and you're really committed to it. I can hear it in your voice. So, I want to pull up. I pulled up the JB saying, I don't know if it includes Regina in it, but at least for the first two events, um, only seven people were over 90%, and one of them was Carrie at 90.07. So, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it shows you how difficult it is. Um, I mean, all those guys have made cuts. Uh, I, I think the, the first ball rates, if you look at it, um, some of them are a little bit high, I think, just because of the lack of first ball throws on there. Um, but I think it's a good sample. I, I do. Sorry, I want to bring back. You're talking about back to four, back four hundreds. Uh, I do remember one instance, and I actually went back and um, I wasn't there, but I remember hearing about it was Jeff Stevens from Ontario Sticks, uh, the 2013 Masters. His last uh, his last five games of the tournament: 403, 408, 302. 350 and a 248. Wow. <laughs> That's right. And if you ever know Jeff, Jeff is a two time Masters champion singles and uh, I, he just, he was unreal, right? But it uh, doesn't really happen that often, right? So here's a question for you guys. Based on JB's data and the 195 people that I had, um, what do you think their average score? On their first ball was average average count on their first ball for those 195 knowing their cumulative average for that group i believe was 247 or 245 something like so we doing out of 15 or first frame or first ball so out of 15. <laughs> so i have the ab stats here so it'd be, it'd be it's kind of unfair for me but uh Highest was 11.95, 11. and that was Sylvain. Um, and the lowest in the top 10 was Mark Miller with 11.51 on average. Yeah. He, he's asking out of the people that have over 40 games. Oh, right? Jesus. I, and I the, their combined average is around 245. What do you think the first ball average hmm. is? It's got to be just over 10. 10. It can't be... It wouldn't be lower than 10, but I don't think it can be over 11. 10.5. And the range is 8.5 to 11.78, which means getting past a chop. Not that easy. <laughs> In your first ball, right? I like, I like the perspective here. This is cool. It's good. Right? So, again more information that says refining our sport I I one of the things that just bugs me is that there aren't enough bowlers in Canada in their leagues that average 270 plus and there should be 
It's a simple game. It's not complicated. Averaging 270 plus in league is not a difficult challenge. It could easily be met. And all it requires is, is obviously for some putting more importance into their league play, obviously, right? Uh, there's a whole list of different things you may look at that would be challenges for that to happen. But the game, I believe, is simplistic enough that more rather than fewer would be averaging 270 bucks. Mm -hmm. I, Do I think... I, I, sorry, I just kind of want to go back to that. So probably one of the greatest players in the whole game, Gino Zebarth. I would be surprised if he had one or two total league averages ever over 270. Now, is yeah. that... So that's a question and, you know to explain why. Uh, I can, I can and he explain. I tell you, he's one of the, the hardest league players I've ever seen play. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know why there would be a disconnect between tournament play and his league play when he was he was all in league. I, he wasn't just I, there to throw balls. It's, it, it comes down to the center, 100%. I, I, I really think a lot of it is the center. Um, we, in Edmonton, I, I can... And I'll throw I'll throw our center underneath the underneath the, you know, uh, I just think it's it's the center. So when we had the Wednesday night match play at, at and uh, sure Park there, Daryl was there. The last year, the highest average in that league was two fifty. Last year was the highest average was two fifty, right? So it, I think it's the center and technology. Now you look at our center, and I mean the we have black bases, but the bands are way better than they ever have been synthetic lanes are way more consistent than wood lanes are right and and the scoring's that much better and i i really think that depending on where you live the approaches are better right um like you go to like for example i'm not we're talking about um dell lanes we had scottsdale out there right people were wearing socks over their shoes they couldn't slide they had different conditions than anything else i think if you give somebody the perfect conditions and you've seen it we've seen it on on most of the tour stops they're well good conditions that's why you see the 2200s now i don't think they can do it consistently but i still think it's not unreasonable to to have that score in the right setting in the right center with things i just don't think it's available to a lot of other people out there throw that stat up of uh, Commodore Lanes that uh, that Don mentioned. That's a pretty neat stat there. Yeah. Right. Commodore All-Star League, Norm Shannis, over 504 games, had nine and a half hits a game for a 267 average. And Frank Levine, right, 460 for 9.6. I mean, that's a pretty high percentage there. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Two all-time greats. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I, I stand by that. I'm I'm 100% convinced that far more players could be averaging 270 plus at home. Mm -hmm. I just it's there's it's the just, challenge. There's the Tom challenge for this year. Hashtag. So JB needs to go hashtag 270 bowler now. Sorry, bud. How many people across the country? Okay, here's a fun stat, guys. How many people across the country? Are going to average 270 this year. Let's see some people in the comment section. What's your What's your guess? Maybe by the end of the year we'll we'll we'll, we'll calculate. 
How many people will average 270 in league this year? I'll do it for a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed for a quarter. Are we? What do you think, Tom? Are we? Hey, if you know what, if if. You know, you often, Daryl, you often put out these challenges, right? Okay. I've watched enough of these shows to, yeah. <laughs> I don't get to watch all of them, but I do get to watch more than fewer. And uh, you always put out these little challenges and they're, they can serve as good motivations for people to, to try and jump on that challenge and and see what they can do all right that's all good um i'd encourage you to remind people of all those little challenges that you put out there you know? i have to go back and watch them all too so <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um i i uh, anyway i can't say it any more clear i believe that there's room for a lot more people averaging 270 plus in our Canadian sport than what we currently have. Mm -hmm. There just is. I do understand the dynamics of the rubber band and how it can dramatically influence scoring, right? And I do understand there are going to be examples where people did not, you know, it, it was tough. Gino, for instance, right? Well, you know, take Gino and put him in uh, Bonnie Dune. How's he going to do? The league yeah. there. Right? Well, yeah, if history league. serves right, not the greatest, Tom. Not yeah. the greatest. <laughs> but that might have been a mental block for Gino. No. Gino and Bonnie Dune never really got along. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, but, that, that's, yeah. that was a prime example, too, because Bonnie Dune, when it was wood lanes and it was 17 inches, I had my best season of my life, like, I, like bowling-wise, not score-wise, and I averaged over 270 that year. And it was a good scoring house, but it wasn't stupid scoring. Then they put the synthetic bases, uh, sort of synthetic lanes in, black bases, 17 inches, and all of a sudden I had averaged over 270, and I was like seventh, right, in the league, right? So I, I think a lot has to do with scoring too, right? Well, you could even look back at, uh, let's just take Edmonton as a sample size. Look back at all the years for city high average. Like, mm -hmm. I think me... And a few guys, we won city high average at Bonnie Dune with two sixty threes. Like it's, and that was probably when I was at the height of my game in like two thousand nine, two thousand ten, when I won the Coke. I had won a bunch of stuff. It, it's it's tough to like. I, I understand what you're saying, Tom. It, I think the percentage out of each house is probably equal across every house. It just the scoring differences in the houses is still a major factor in our game. There's yep. too many discrepancies across every center. 264. Yep. 264. And 264. And then Adam won 271, Matt won 274, and then 2016 is when it started going nuts. Uh, Freddie had 288, Adam had 289, and it just kind of went up yeah. from there. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, anyway, one, one final little tidbit here on this improving your line, right? When an individual is ready, a lot of that has to do with the perspective they take wanting to try and refine their delivery, right? And may, 
I'd like to suggest that a good way to go into that is rather than saying, this is what I want to do, how about those really difficult challenges in front of you, how about just going in with a curiosity to find out how you could do? But in terms of just simply learning to pocket bowl, it starts by recognizing what side of the head pin do you typically hit, right? Um, and over the course of time, there's probably one side that your delivery will favor. And then you just simply look at working out what is it that changes and leads that ball to move to the other side. Most likely what it is, is the rotation at your release, which is a fine motor skill set, right? So we can take that all the way back to your stance and ask, are you holding the ball exactly the same every time? And Carrie, I understand you've got a lot of background in baseball, right? So, you know, one of the things five pin bowlers could do a whole lot of good with is experimenting with changing their grip. I use, I use a weighted grip oftentimes, right? Because it predisposes me to throwing a backup ball. And Carrie's head is nodding like, yes, yes, yes. Because, you know, when you change your grip, how you spread your fingers across the ball, right? How deep you hold the ball in your hand, where you hold your hand on the ball. Those all influence the movement on the lane. Oh, the more yeah, aware sure. and sensitized you are to those things, the more consistent you are with the most uh, difficult aspect of the game, which is the rotation on the ball. Because it's fine motor, it's what your fingers do. And it all can start right back at square one, your grip, right? Yeah. So. Um, just to use that into an example, Tom, um, back in 2017 when I was playing really well, I didn't make a lot of changes besides moving yeah. my thumb. If I noticed I was getting less rotation and I wasn't getting the movement I wanted to see on the ball, I would move my thumb in and then it would create more rotation. I'd get a little more move, movement on the ball. I haven't done that in the last few years because I haven't been nearly as sharp, but it is definitely something that I've used in my game and I know Adam Weber has used it. Mm -hmm. It's a simple you, a simple tool see, to you, change rotation. You, yeah. You can see Adam, you know, when he's at the ball sometimes too, he's, he's doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, so there's a very simple adjustment that can lead to a more consistent release, right? And I believe the release you want is not one you manufacture, but one that's natural for you, right? So everybody, if they're throwing their natural delivery, can learn to become a pocket bowler. It's, it's not difficult. It's just about putting your ball in a different place. And it begins with recognizing what side. And then I believe it begins with recognizing what changes. And most likely what changes is the rotation on the ball. Is it the, the thumb the, the biggest change when you're holding the ball? Or is it the pinky out there? What's the carrier? What, what do you? Well, you mine, know what? mine is the thumb. I tuck my thumb in if I want more rotation on the ball. If I want less rotation, I move it out. And I think that I, I don't know, you know whether you hold the 
ball on the side or whether you're holding the ball with your hand underneath, right? It, yeah, it's mostly 45 on the 45 of the ball. Yeah. I don't I don't tend to get underneath because that could lead to um, I used to have a tendency, not so much when I throw a hook now, but I used to have a tendency that I'd, I could under, I'd flip it in a backup instead of a, a hook rotation. So then I used to play it on the side and I knew I could always release it in a hook, but I could get over top of it, which is a bad sign because yeah. your ball gets sideways motion instead of forward motion. So then I just kept it on the 45 and then I knew there was no way I was going to flip it to a backup, but I'd have more stability instead of going over top of the ball. But that was a, that was just a learning thing. I think if people are thinking that deep into it, it, I don't know if that's the first thing you want to think about. You want to get a natural release before you're starting to think about where you're placing your your hand on the ball. Right. I think the only one of the criteria in terms of grip that I always like to suggest for people to experiment with is assuring that they're not holding the ball with their hand directly underneath. Because when they do, their whole forearm is tight. And what that does is take you away from having a nice, relaxed, unloaded swing. So just by moving your hand on the side, you can relax that. You can relax the grip because you can use your left hand to hold most of the weight or your non-throwing hand, right? Kyle Young, your mental game needs to be polished to get over 270, yes. It's a lot of luck as well. No, it's not a lot of luck. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. I disagree with you. It's not a luck, lot of luck. I think it's very conceivable to average 270. Mm -hmm. Very conceivable. But do, do, cell phones, do cell phones go slow motion video enough that you can see the release and the thumb? And then you, you talked about sides and can you can we video that into that detail? It's, it's very fuzzy, right? So if you can do yeah. spot frame thing as you're moving it along, you can get some of that. But it is a very fuzzy picture. It's not like uh, watching what the, the sports television is true. Right. The, the new There's the new iPhones have slow mo on them, and they can get up to I think it's 240 frames per second. So that's more than enough to see release time. I know I have a iPhone 13, yeah. and my video, I can see how you're releasing the ball. Or, yeah. and when I use it on myself, I can see how I'm releasing it. But it is fuzzy. You know, it's not crystal clear. But, but it, anyway, I can see it. So they've got the technology just for the common person to have it now on their phones. Yeah. There, I know there's uh, an app out there that uh, Sean Larson uses a lot. Right, and you can see it off that. Yeah. But, you know. Hmm. Um, Tom, another another topic you brought us. Um, yeah, the gold standard. I guess the stats, the gold standard, right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, we got into the gold standard now. I believe that, that the word gold standard <clears throat> has a certain connotation that says, well, there's a goal for our, our better athletes out there, the ones that are more committed to uh, excelling at their game, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in that respect, I think you can use the data to help you recognize 
what a reasonable standard for yourself is. When, when I did these surveys uh, to help me get data for the book, um, I <clears throat> one of the questions I asked quite frequently was, how frequently did you hit the middle? And how much, what's your spare percentage and all this, right? And it also asked the individual to identify their average. And, and I saw so many people respond that had, you know, 220 averages, and yet they thought they spared 80% of the time. Now, maybe they do. I, I mean, uh, but that, if you look at the data, right, sparing 80% of the time, there's very few people that are doing that. Yeah. Right? So anyway, the data that I was collecting was was really skewed heavily. So I was very thankful that JB started collecting that data. And I was very thankful I was able to use what I'd had uh, in my early earlier collection used in the term. But JB's data is going to go a long way to helping identify some true standards for what is fair and reasonable. And as much as I could go through that in my book, it's in my book, um, about some statistics, at least in the second printing, not in the first printing, but in the second printing it is. Um, I know that standard's going to move up. But let me see what, let me see what I can find here. Um, Talk amongst yourselves. Um, So let's just build on that. So Daryl, you talked about, obviously you're, you're going to try and up your, your middle hit percentage, which will obviously equate to more strike percentage and more um, scoring. Tim, is there any part of your game that you look to improve upon? Like um, you said you're 85%, I think on the JB stats, you're 83% on tour. Um, Is that something you look forward to? upping or is it more of a spare watch or where where are you looking to make your biggest improvements um, this coming season honestly i didn't really think a whole lot about it but if you look at my stats if you look at my stats, i'm not worried about hitting the middle that i'm not worried about um i think for me it, it is my spares i want to make sure i get my single pin my my chop spares my five miss spares i think those are the main ones i obviously they're all of them but uh I just think those are the most important. It's my sparing. Um, wood itself, picking up wood, I'm not worried about. I I, I guess I always kind of, over the season, I kind of judge myself by, um, in the moment, how how I how I react, right? And I, that's kind of always what I kind of work on. Like if you need to throw a strike or you need to throw a, a mark or you need to throw something or pick up that corner in order to, you know, to win your match, I think that's what I kind of judge my season on. Um, obviously results is a different thing, but just that portion. And, um, I always try to work on more of a mental game than anything. I think, um, good. Like, like, and, and one of the things that, that Tom talks about, uh, was, uh, mental imagery and, you know, positive self-talk or, um, getting yourself in that right state of mind. And that's what I like to work on more. And then I think the rest kind of follows itself for the most part. Here's what I know, gentlemen. 
using JB's data, all right, <laughs> as a benchmark for us. And I'll just, well, let's start with a 240 to 250 average crew, right? Their gold standard should be to hit the middle 75 to 85% of the time. Their pin count on the first ball, 9.5. Their pair, spare percentage, 65 to 70 percent for the 240 to 250 crowd. Gold standard, that means they're pushing themselves, right? It doesn't mean uh, these people have achieved that. They may have. There's always outliers. There's always people that are going to achieve higher on one end of the scale than another. The strike percentage pretty much stays consistent for all average groups over 240, and that is 48 to 51%. Great um, that speaks to the complexity of the game and getting a strike, right? It's, <laughs> we, we all believe strikes are easy to get, but we also understand that on a good day, we might get 60% on a good game. Like the other day, I got, uh, I hit the middle nine times the other day. I got eight strikes. Hey! <laughs> but that's, excuse me, that certainly didn't hold true for the rest of the night, right? 48 to 51% is, is, is a really good benchmark to try and get your strike zone in. And overall, right? Now, the key to all this is applying yourself to lead play the way you do in competition so that you can narrow the gap between how you play in lead play versus and how you play in competition so that the skill sets that you want to take the lead play or the tournament play, you've already rehearsed and are familiar with within the concept of lead play and any minor tournaments that you might have, right? Um, and there lies a bit of the problem because a lot of people see their league play more in the social aspect of it, right? Um, we're not all able to take advantage of holding in a major league, for instance, where the competitive element is a little stronger, right? Um, anyway. If you were averaging 265 plus, hitting the middle 85 to 95% of the time. Pin count 11.5 on your first ball and a spare percentage of 70 to 85%. The spare percentage only went up five, a minimum of 5% and as much as 15% between the top average group of 265 and those averaging 250. So throwing more strikes. Yeah, yeah. I I, so, I like I like what my it says the middle hit rate is eighty three percent. My strike rate is fifty one and a half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the importance of that second ball is huge, right? So, yes. Have the second ball. What's the highest strike rate? The highest strike rate, I I believe, was fifty six percent, and was that Sylvian? May have been. Um, yeah, 56 with Sylvain, yeah. 
That's interesting you said that it was 265 average, Tom, and it was 70% spare percentage from 70 to 85. 70 to 80, yeah. I mean, so you're getting six strikes, and then the four spares, you're only getting, you know, three to the four. So I guess that's okay. But if you look at that standalone stat on its own, you're only getting 70% of the spares, which is hard to take, but when you add them all together. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, the more strike, yeah, you know what I mean? You're the more, you're throwing a lot of strikes, but you're missing not more spares, but you're, you're, you should be missing now working on the more spares to refinement. <laughs> yeah. You actually, uh, in theory, anyway, uh, the higher average bowler should be throwing at fewer spares. <laughs> yeah. That's only in theory, right? So. Something I'm looking at too, and you know, give me your thoughts on this is looking at the big shot moments or the clinching shot moments. Now it's kind of hard to do because there's probably lots of big shots that you do that you probably aren't counting. But what I want to do is that the, the, the times that you're up in 10 and you have an opportunity to win the game, whether it's by two, by whatever, you need to make a shot. Right. Yeah. And now, and so you have a reference point. Okay. You're, did you make the shot? You're one and oh, the yeah. next time you get up there, now you can say I'm 12 and oh on, on clinching shots, mm -hmm. you know, or stuff. So, you know, I, I had an opportunity to win the, win a 10th frame, uh, win the, win the game. And I missed the middle. Of course, here I am talking about all the times I want to hit the middle and I missed one of them in the 10 or in 12th and I, and I didn't win the game. You know, I had the opportunity, Tim, to, to shoot the 400. Yeah. In the and that, and that was the 11th ball, and I didn't make it. So, am I counting those as the big shots? But it was a time to clinch a 400, which was a big shot moment. You know, time to win a match was a big shot <laughs> moment. Maybe the the shot before was just as big of a moment, and I'm not counting. But mm -hmm. this, these are these are some of the things that I want to be cognizant of in order to gain the confidence over the course of the year in all of those clinchable big shot moments. I know can where I, I'm at. Can I make a suggestion? Please. Those big shot moments, you can have far more of them than you're recognizing. Yeah, and that's what I'm asking is help me recognize all the other ones that I should be recognizing so yeah, that you don't put yourself into a point of only recognizing the ones you didn't make. Yeah. You know what I mean? Every single time you feel like you're putting pressure on yourself or you're thinking about results instead of how you're going to execute the ball and just staying within the moment, right? Those are success stories. Those are times to frame it and remember that yes i was successful there right not just pinning that big shot moment on whether you won the match in the 10th frame right mm -hmm. there are a lot of smaller successes that add up really equally in value over the long haul right knowing that you were able to bring your mind back into focus when you needed it the other thing i'm interested in just on a personal note is understanding that you missed the middle why do you understand was it a physical problem or was it a mental problem that led to a physical right and being able to sort that out after the fact as you there i'm a bit of a nut that way because i will analyze my own game in terms of was it a physical or a mental problem was it a mental problem that led to a physical problem or was it simply a a one-off physical screw-up.
So I I have a question. I know we're talking about the one shot or the the chance to win. I I think like over the course of the season, Mitch and I have had this discussion lots, right? Um, what is your season defined f- from? Like right? how do how do you define your season, right? Um, for most of us, we play we play the open qualifying. Let's say just not include the provincials, but you play open. We play. Th- we play six tournaments a year or, th- or three weekends, I say weekends. So one weekend for the Open, one weekend for three weekends for Masters, and then say five for the five for the Tour now, right? So you're looking at 10 weekends defines your whole season of over 30 weeks plus. Really, it, it defines your whole season. So out of that, out of the, your, your events there, like what do you take as a success, right? You might have been very good over the time. You might just made a few cuts, but you didn't have the results that you want. But you might have had a good season, right? Um, I, I think, I think there's you can make certain shots or key shots, um, like whether it's you know like Daryl, you know, going for a four hundred and, and throwing the strike in, in league play. But as for like key moment shots in any of those pressure events. I, I think there may be a handful or two at most throughout the season, right? And that kind of defines your season too, I think. But I want to, in league or in opportunities, when that thought creeps into my mind, either A, take it in, know that this is one of those moments you're going to measure, or train yourself to get that out of your head and don't even think about it, which... It's pretty much next to impossible, let's be honest. It's not going to get out of my head. So if I can train to accept it, and many others, train to accept this as a moment and be able to execute in that moment to be able to get that win or to achieve that, that, that mark, that builds confidence and future reference for when you are in a bigger tournament or a bigger opportunity that you can go back to and you can say, I, I made, you know, I've been in a situation, that thought has creeped into my mind again, and I know where I'm at, and now I can continue to build on that, that reference point. Um, I'm glad Dexter showed his face there, because I watched, uh, I watched your match today. Right? <laughs> I, I, I'm glad we came back for this conversation. <laughs> and it led me to thinking about the importance of role. I listened to your interview. I watched your match. And, you know, the Wiseman brothers are exceptional players, as is Kerry. I mean, they're exceptional players. Um, when we speak about big ball moments, right? And you're playing uh, basically each frame as a value, correct? There's carryovers. <laughs> so there you are. Uh, tell us about frame four. You know, you threw three strikes, right? Was was there any first up, you know, from an outsider looking in, okay? I was sitting on the edge of my seat because I felt that this was going to be one heck of a match. And I watched you both getting strikes to start off, right? Um, and I was sitting on the edge of my sheet, seat just 
eager to see how it all unfolded. And I, I just, my shoulders just slumped when that fourth frame came because um, I really know that you're a guy that can put more than three together. So we're talking about that big shot moment, right? Um, and I believe being in the championship, being in that match play format the way it is, big shot moment. Take us through how that evolved through getting to the fourth frame. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to elaborate that on, on like deeply in depth, but, um, I felt good. I felt good the whole time. Um, I was definitely nervous the whole time out of all the events, out of everything that we play. That's the one thing that always makes me nervous. It's just that situation. It's just such a unique situation that you're only in, in maybe once a year, maybe once every two years, maybe once every five years. So it, it's a really just unique situation. Um, first three frames felt good. Um, I, I know I'm facing someone who's either best of the country or second best in the country. Um, so I need to, I know I need to throw strikes. Um, so I was really happy to go up there and throw the double right away um, after Mitch started and threw the strike. Um, honestly, the fourth frame came around and my mindset didn't change. The thought process didn't change. Um, it was all there. I just, you know, it's funny. I, I watched probably the first frame. Like I think I threw, I think I watched like one frame of that get match because it's not something I want to go back and relive, but um, I instantly saw a flaw in my approach and it's probably a big reason why I have punched as much as I have in the last number of years. So it's a good learning tool that way. Um, but mentally I felt the same going into that fourth frame, definitely a little bit deflated after the fourth frame. Um, knowing that that opportunity for him to take the first four frames was right there for him. And that puts me behind the eight ball really quick. Um, but you know what? Here's something also that I think is an important takeaway for our viewers, all right? Is your recovery. Okay? That may have happened, but your recovery, uh, you were still in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's the reason why the ninth frame was so devastating to me and, and making that mistake was because I had put myself into a position where I could take that match. Um, that match was ultimately in my hands. I make the I make the sparrow strike out. I win that match, right? So, um, so did the ninth frame, was the ninth frame a different mindset than what had preceded it? How was the ninth? Talk us. No, yeah, not initially. Uh, not initially. Throw the first ball. Felt okay about the first ball. Um, felt confident going for the spare. Um, just put it, put it down a little bit earlier and, but it wasn't like I was trying to push it to a spot or anything like that. It just sort of happened. My, my thought process didn't change. Um, third ball thought process probably changed. I was like, okay, don't, don't put it down again. Don't put it down. Aim a little bit left. And then it, as soon as you start saying things like don't punch, you're going to punch. The second you say things like don't put the ball down you're going to put the ball down. And I did, I just, I just put it right back down to the same spot I was before. And it was just 
it was it was a mental error for sure. So, I mean, those those are good learning opportunities for you, but they're also, I think, for the, the audience as well, recognizing your recovery, right? And the resilience required to make that recovery, right? And I, you know, I, I don't sit inside your brain and analyze things, et cetera, but um, I believe the resiliency and recovery was about staying focused on the things within your control. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and ultimately there's any athlete in any sport that their high performance always comes back to staying within what they can control. Right. Mentally. Right? Yeah. 100%. And when their mind does wander, well, you know, the more attention you give, your mind when it wanders, the longer it stays there. <laughs> so just yeah. allow it to pass. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't look to have a war on words about it and start getting into a blame game, etc. but just allow it to pass because it's natural, it's normal to have thoughts go through your head. And the more you rehearse this, uh, the better. One of, one of the uh, items I did want to touch on was the power of role play. And, you know, our subconscious always, always, research has proven this uh, ad nauseum. Our subconscious always looks for the happy spot. Our subconscious always looks for the happy spot, which leads me to believe, again, to reinforce what I believe, is that we are success-driven. All right, uh, because of our intellect, we're able to take our experiences where we are not successful, analyze them, and move forward. Right, but I believe we're success driven. Anyway, there's this thing called contrast in motivation, and it all has to do about uh, a role play scenario. So you take one event, all right, whatever that one event is, and you think of all the reasons why you would like to win that event. So, you know, there used to be this thing about being positive all the time, right? And so people would make this mad rush to, to uh, think of all the reasons why they want to be successful or qualify first or win this tournament, right? And they could make a long list. They could go on and on about how this will be so awesome for them, right? It, it may be uh, what it does for them financially. It may be what it does for them in terms of their peer group. Who knows, right? Make that list, though. Make it. And then also make a list of what's going to happen what are those hurdles that are going to come up along the way for you to get there, right? Make those. And your, your particular match that you had today, um, if, if I had a bowler sitting with me and I was working with them, you know, to show them that match that you had 
and use that as a vehicle for them to brainstorm, okay, you want this, what are some of the hurdles you have to get by? And we make a list of all the hurdles you have to get by. You have to get by the fact that one day you're going to play Mitch Davies. One day you're going to play uh, Dexter Wiseman. One day you're going to play Tim. All these people, right? All these moments that are going to feel so good for you, right? As an achievement for yourself. And then list all the hurdles that will come with doing that. Okay? And that's the contrast because you have that motivation that's up here and now you think of all the hurdles that are going that you will need to meet to help you get there all right and then you start organizing strategies to attack those areas that could be challenges or hurdles right okay how am i going to rehearse playing Mitch Davies and Dexter Wiseman. I remember in my, I mean, I'm just reconnecting with the idea of me being a bowler again. <laughs> and there are some pretty humorous moments in my life these days in, in doing that. But I remember in the days of the CBC and the TSN and the KG tournament and, and being involved in that, I did this very thing. And I rehearsed what it was like to play these individuals. And I knew the age that they played the game at. I knew the, you know, a, a prime example for me was Len Ansett. I knew the pace that he played the game at. And I rehearsed in my mind what that felt like and how i was going to go about just staying in my own moment right what could i do to help go past that and some of the things that i chose in terms of strategies to meet those hurdles was to ignore the score ignore the opposition to sit head bowed to go for a walk um <coughs> excuse me uh, sometimes it was about the self-talk I did to myself, right? Okay, the self-talk you do to yourself when someone gets three in a row on you, right? And you come back with three in a row, right? To, just to, so that you can come into that match, Dexter, and feel totally comfortable. Totally. Right. Um, when when you're talking about lists, you you made a list of like what 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 happened if you win. You made a list of the hurdles to yeah. overcome things. But I think and also an, another important list is what happens if you don't succeed at that event. Right. And that's one of those and that's one of those hurdles that that you need to sit down and figure out what are you gonna do there? Because yeah. ultimately and, and this isn't a knock on the game at all, but ultimately if you do not succeed and this is a game where winning is going to be far, far, far less common than than losing. If you do not win an event, the outcome after that, your your that list is pretty pretty small 
as to what that's going to happen, what's, what's going to happen to you after you. You're not going to lose respect from your peers. You're not going to lose any of those things. It's going to be a learning moment, but there's, we need to make that list too, because there's an inherent fear of failure and people need to sit down and realize that ultimately if you lose this match, it doesn't change who you are and it doesn't change your life if you don't exactly. if you don't win this event and are, i think that's an important thing too because you can't be afraid to lose and those are part those are part of the hurdles that you can have to and it's, it's really good to enlighten and, and refocus on that part of it as well right mm -hmm. really feel okay what are you going to do and you mentioned something very important and that was the the idea about uh, your peers, you know, how are they going to perceive you, right? And understanding that they're still accepting you and they're, they still believe in you, per se, right? Um, those are huge for some people and uh, for more more important than for some than others, but it's a really good point to me. Excellent good stuff. Yeah, I, I, know, I don't know. I... I bowling terms it's crazy um i i think when i go to these events i have a feel of failure which motivates me to be focused and 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 do my best right um but afterwards i mean it's great to win and everything but bowling doesn't define me like on the lanes as much as it used to i i think bowling for me it's like i would rather be recognized as as playing well, um, showing respect and 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 all that other stuff before. I want to just the, catch yeah. Tim. I want to interject. I want your feedback on this. Okay. Right. I think it's an important point. What led you? Because you said something important. No longer, right? No longer is it a big deal for you. But at mm -hmm. one point, it was. A big deal so how did you go about changing that what was the trigger what was uh, was it maturation was what was yeah. it that you led know, you to get to that place I, I think I think it's crazy to think that you know when I I was originally going to go to school right I wanted to go to school I want to do this and then I um, I but then I wanted to be like a lot of the young guys now I wanted to go play the tour I wanted to go travel I wanted to be the best right and I think I've done very well over over my time looking back at it, but when you get older, there's other priorities. Like we're busy with work. There's there's the five pin universe. There's you know like I have time with Cindy and her, and her family, and and there's other things that that revolve around not just bowling, right? Um, but that being said, I'd still love to compete. I still want to compete all the time. But at the end of the day, it doesn't define who I am. If I lose, it doesn't make me less of a person. Right, it doesn't make me doesn't make me less of a bowler. I feel um, as long as I, I I respect everybody. I you know I try my best, didn't give up. I I I'm okay with it. Right, you know. Um, where whereas when I was about ten years ago, it really would it would really defeat us. Right. Um, I I just think that I think that's a big thing. Growing up in in our community, I think there's still a handful, maybe one or two guys that. I grew up with that still let them define them. And I, I just think it's, it's, you get angry, you get upset, you're more emotional than you need to be. And I think all those factors, when you get rid of those factors, you're a better player. 
right? Because you, you can control yourself a whole lot better, right? I, that's just my, my, kind of my, my two cents there. Good two cents. More like a nickel or a dime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harry, I think what, about, what about you in terms of, uh, let's think big shock moment. What lessons do you learn from your opportunities? You you get to uh, you get to look at this from two perspectives because you're a multi-sport athlete that's exceptional in two sports, right? Um, I find in bowling, like th these guys have been saying, you get a lot less opportunities for those big moments. So when they happen they can be very devastating. Um, and as somebody that's, I've had, I've had those moments where you, you lose the tournament in the, the finals to go to nationals, or you lose the tournament because you missed a shot in 10. Um, I, I get what they're saying. I get that it doesn't define you. There'll be another day. There'll be all that, but there's also got to be a motivation behind it that this may be your last chance to win this tournament. This may be the last chance you get to be in this spot. You you need to take some onus and and be a little hurt by it. Be a little struck by it. it. It's the bounce back that matters the most. It's not how you carry yourself right directly after that moment. I don't believe. If if that was the case, you would you would never see the major athletes like tiger woods and would never break a club rory mcroy wouldn't ever break a club quarterbacks wouldn't lose their crap when they miss a throw like you have to you have to show that emotion you just can't uh, i don't know in in baseball it's completely different if you if you're the guy you're packing a team with you if you make a mistake you carry the whole team on your back with you um so it is pretty devastating um, but I look at it as it, it's my last chance to be in that position. If I don't make it, yeah, I'm going to be bummed out. But by the end of the next day, I'm, I'm good to go. So um, it's a totally different perspective, I think. Convoluted as it was to get to the answer. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. <laughs> and I'm not saying it doesn't motivate me. But I can't play being afraid to lose. I need to be out there playing to win. There, I, I feel like there's a big difference between those two. You know, I don't want to be up there scared to make a mistake. I want to be up there expecting to throw a strike. I remember uh, listening to Aaron Armstrong talk about how her coach, Dylas, would always say, when you get up in the lane, Know that you're throwing a strike. Something, something to that effect, right? That you're committed to throwing a strike. It's your job. So I look, I look at it as kind of your job, I suppose, right? And then pick up whatever's left. <laughs> but you're only getting 51% strikes. Anyway, yeah. So um, if I can just jump in and share something totally off topic here. Um, I've been uh, working at trying to 
get this second edition, which is 30 pages, 40 pages longer than the original, mostly because of the the good work of Don Sim in giving me work uh, put together for the Western Canadian Championships, but also gave me an opportunity to expand on a few chapters, a paragraph here, a paragraph there, right? And when we when I did the first publication of the book, it was sold out in three weeks. And that just surprised the heck out of me. I, I printed 150 books this time around. <coughs> and I want to get it in the hands of bowlers. I want people to have an opportunity, uh, I guess, I don't mean to brag, but I think there's a lot of, I believe there's a lot of very valuable information in the book. And people can read it and say, yes, I like that. No, I don't. But can it challenge their perspective or it can add to their perspective? It's not about necessarily saying my way or the highway. It's about reading just another perspective from what Unfortunately, in our sport, um, who does the writing, right? Uh, Five Pin Universe puts together a, a great little magazine that they, you send out, okay? Well, there's two groups to do this, basically, right? And me and you. So, in terms of paper form anyway, correct? So, uh, there have been blog attempts that have you know, had a shorter shelf life than we would have thought. Some initiated from down east that I, I really thought were wonderful, but they had a shorter shelf life than I really expected. Your five-pin universe stuff and everything you're doing around uh, cultivating the sport, it's lasting, right? So you need to do more of it. My book is not about challenging people to change to my way, it's about offering another perspective to weigh in on what their current beliefs are, which I believe there'll be a lot of affirmations in the book. And there'll also be a few challenges for people. Anyway, one of the things we're putting together with the proprietors is through their Nexus letter. And uh, we're inviting proprietors to submit an interest in having a copy, and then we're going to make some random draws from the people that submit and give out at least 10 books to different communities. And I hope that it, those books end up in hands that are not just in Western Canada. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've sold books across Canada Right, but if we go per capita, per or not per capita, but per province, right? The vast majority of the books from the first sale and this sale, the vast majority are BC, Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, and Northern Ontario. Um, there's a handful of people that have purchased the book further east. I think part of the problem is name recognition, right? They don't know me. Out west, people know me more. Um, 
you you were highly influential you were and are i should say highly influential to a lot of people um, a lot of people that are playing the game now a lot of people that are well, moving into the game a lot of people that are leaving the game um well, especially with your bowling school um yeah. you've been synonymous with the growth of the competitive side of the game so that that does make sense the western canadians were the ones that were mostly attending your schools right yeah so um you know i believe that the name recognition does get i've made uh four calls through email and facebook to bowling centers in ontario and i've volunteered to send them a copy at no expense, no obligation, just use it in their bowling center for their bowlers, for their bowling community, no cost. And um, the idea is that if a bowler in their community wants their own copy, they can get in touch with me because the information is provided within the book. But um, it's not about sales as much as getting it in the hands of the people, right? Every single bowling center in southern Ontario said no. Oh, really? Yeah. And I contacted bowling centers that I had played in at a championship. Be it a CBC That's show, be it a TSN show, be it a Masters, or be it an Open. All right? So... Uh, now, maybe the ownership of those lanes has changed. I don't know. Doesn't much matter. What it does say clearly is that the focus of the proprietor is not as big on sport development, potentially. So I paired myself up with Bull Canada to try and get the book out and uh, so now the idea is those that get the Nexus newsletter and read it, they respond and show interest, and I will send them a copy, right? No expense for them to get it into their bowlers' hands so that they can just preview it. It's an expensive book. Nobody. Like, the last book was 45 bucks, and I think that included mailing. All right. Well, this book is 60 bucks just to get the book. That's not counting 25 bucks to get it to you. Yeah. Right. It's an expensive outlay. So I understand that it's not uh, a book for everybody. But I do believe if we can get it into the bowling center, those that are interested, you know, they can sit down uh, during their league and browse through it and pick up tips that might help them, right? They can put it back on the counter and someone else can do the same thing. And if they want more, they can, you know, pursue it. I'm not, if I sell all of the 150, great. But if, if I don't, that's okay. You know, I, I just want to make sure that if, if, when I say that's okay, if I'm giving them, <laughs> I want to give them in a place where I know it's going to be most productive. Right? And, and in my brain, cracking uh, Eastern Canada, you know, uh, that's a big, big task. Or yeah, and it, and it shouldn't be. 
Like this is this is something that proprietors should do. I mean, it's not even it's not even about like the elite level or things like that. There's lots of things in the book that will help them as well. But this is about, you know, just being aware of your clientele, being aware of the people walking in your building. You're going to have people that are the elite. You're going to have people that are there just, just to drink and, and, and throw some balls. You're, um, you're going to have some people that go into leagues, and then you're going to see some of those people that join the leagues that are like, hey, you know, I want to get better at this. And, and you yeah. see them yeah. actively trying to get better. And, and just be aware of that and be like, hey, he, here's an option for you. I can give you some tips, but here is some some option for you to take a look through this book and get better mentally and get better with your approach. So anyway, I I was disheartened when I when I personally send out emails, use their Facebook, use their online way of contacting them, right? Uh, most centers have a way of contacting them and sending them a note. Use that way. All four bowling centers from Ontario. And these are places that had, as I said, TSN, CBC championships at one time, or an Open or Masters championship. And no, not interested. It just, it, it just blows my mind. But it does tell me how much the focus of proprietors and their business model has changed. And, you know, it is survival. It does make sense, you know. Um, uh, geez, 40 years ago when glow bowling started, <laughs> people thought it was a fad. <laughs> Still yeah. there, right? Yeah. Um, even better. Anyway, the work, the, but the work that your group does is instrumental in where the game goes. And I know it takes a lot away from your personal life. I know it does. It just, there's, I don't, I cannot fathom how much time it takes away from your family to do this on a weekly basis. I mean, Valerie would be tapping me on the shoulder if I was one of you and saying, Tom, you, you can't be doing this every week because it's not just coming on for two hours. It's the stuff you did before to be ready for it, right? And it's all the legwork you've done maybe this week, maybe last week, maybe on a Sunday, maybe where, whenever, right? Okay? Uh, it's thinking of the questions. It's, uh, it's just a whole bunch of work, boys. And the work you do, though, is cutting edge and the statistics, Carrie, when I was putting the book together, the statistics you gave me just made me think this is where we don't need CBC and TSN. We're doing it here. The number of views you have for the shows you put on, all right, with bowling, the, the work you do at being able to um, – share other events that are not, you know, your baby, let's say, right? Okay. Um, it's so significant. It is, it is beyond knowledge of how significant it is. Your statistics 
truly, uh, really, they're the sales point. When you're going out looking for, for product, when you're looking for sponsorship, you know, and and trying to uh, develop a group of of um, companies to to buy into Five Pin, right? Um, it's the statistics, the work you gentlemen are doing that make that idea viable. You know, it really is. I mean, heavens to Murgatroyd, it, it just is. So, um, but I, 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 on the other hand, don't destroy your personal life for this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Your, uh, your personal life is always got to be part of your world, you know? I mean, it's, yeah, this is just a sport. But anyway, uh, as in every other sport. By the way, explain to me, how is how is $97 million for LeBron James going to make his life any different? How is joining LIV and getting $22 million going to make your life any different? It isn't. The money they're getting, it's just an ego trip. Nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't change how they're going to play the game. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change their lifestyle. It doesn't change what they can do. You know, Le LeBron just needs more money so he can have something up on MJ. Yeah, that's it. Uh. So, um, Goat. That's right. <laughs> I just saw some of the salaries that these uh, NFLers are getting right now, right? And I thought, holy crap, like it's crazy. Why Jackson, can't five pin bowlers be getting ninety-seven million dollars for TV ratings? Like. Fifty thousand. How about ninety-seven dollars? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, as long as, uh, yeah. Anyway, the reality there's a, where there's a dream, maybe there's a way. But here yeah. within sport uh, is entertainment, right? And so you are collecting statistics that help validate our sport as entertainment, right? And uh, as that data grows and grows, there'll be a salesman that can make a pitch. You know, maybe maybe you're one of those salesmen. I I don't know. <laughs> you gentlemen well enough to know that. But pens and coffee cups. Pardon me. <laughs> pens, pens and coffee, coffee cups. cups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you you do a wonderful job. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Oh, appreciate it. Well, what is this, gentlemen? Gentlemen, read the room. <laughs> Just <laughs> Lenny being Lenny. But, man. but Lenny, thanks for that. Change? The influence. Thank you very much. Thanks. I got much. I got your gift card, Len. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> he he changed that, the name from Len to Leonard, and I thought he was becoming more mature, and mm -hmm. clearly not. Yes, so, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, uh, the ancestors are a good family, and uh, anyway, and all those other people that I've come to meet over the bowling school mm -hmm. journey. By the way, tidbit of knowledge, I'm not doing bowling school anymore. 
What? I'm not. Retirement? Retired. How mm-hmm. how hard of a decision was that for you, Tom? Um, not hard. <laughs> because of some events in my life. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the two pieces of that. One, the health of my spouse, Valerie, right? She's still got... I always say she's still got lots of years. <laughs> she likes to paraphrase that and refine that and change it a bit. But who knows how long we've Anyway, but in January I had COVID, and um, it, in my mind it was pretty calm, pretty mild. You know, I felt tired a lot. I had a cough. Blah, blah, blah. Um, that was it. Then as I started. Uh, putting this book together, but more importantly, starting to focus in on the bowling school. Okay, I started recognizing that my brain was not functioning as it used to. I could carry on conversations like this today about stuff that I know inside out, right? But I could not do a good job, a satisfactory job, like basic, basic stuff. For example, Thursday morning at the bowling school, there's always a meeting with all the staff, right? Okay. <laughs> and I, I share this saying, I'm healthy. I'm not going anywhere. I, I'll be, I don't know, 90 something, probably be fine. But however, I came to the staff meeting with all of us there, and basically what we do is we go through our agenda, we go through the uh, lane draws we have, the groups we have, etc., the hotel rooming lists, all that stuff. Anyway, the number of mistakes I made on that material I was giving them on lane draw, who was in their group, Hotel room, who was in the room? Um, it was wow, I made so many mistakes. <laughs> Excuse me, it was mind boggling how many mistakes I made on simple stuff. And I even left, I even didn't have registration forms in my binder, and yet I knew they were registered. I knew they were, but. But if there was ever a problem with that kid, I had no information in my binder to help me figure out, okay, we have an emergency here. <laughs> okay. so do you I think that this is what do you think this is just you 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 getting back into the swing of things? Because Tom, I remember you telling us a story at bowling school about you just randomly taking your pants off in the bowling alley while not thinking. So like <laughs> I don't remember that one. Yeah, I remember that story. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah. So, so there, I, I mean, like, story though. I'll, I'll end these with things that. happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, I had spent weeks at doing something as simple as a lane drop. Okay. And I left people out of the thing. I, I mean, 
anyway, bottom line is the best thing I could do was to step away. And by stepping away, um, I'm perfectly comfortable with whether or not the school continues or whether it doesn't. I'm perfectly comfortable with that. It is what it will be, you know. Everything, as I've explained to a few people, everything has a shelf life, right? And uh, I believe there's a place for the school, all right? But it will take, uh, I believe, a collective um, group to do that. I don't believe... Um, it's something that you can plop down on the shoulders of one person. Uh, yeah. I start, I start thinking budget uh, in November and collecting information because by January and February information needs to go out. I believe information needs to go out, but anyway, you know that there's all sorts of little and stuff that you need to take care of in terms of budgeting and figuring out the cost for everything. Anyway, I'm perfectly comfortable and I'm okay and I'm healthy and I'm, I'm absolutely fine with it. I mean, we've done the school since 1986 and I've done the BC school for, uh, I bet you it's close to 20 years now. Yeah. We used to do one in Manitoba for about a dozen years and we did one in Northern Ontario for three or four years. Um, but it, anyway, it's it's just time to step back and, and it will become whatever it becomes. And that's the way it is. I mean, there's, uh, that's well, okay. The BC school, and I don't want any, uh, no, no Dexter, you don't get to say, uh, good things about well, your experiences and all that because I know they were good, they were awesome. Okay, but yeah. anyway, I'm still going out to the BC school because all I have to do is show up. I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is show up and do my spiel. You know, stuff I've done for years. Okay, that I could do with Saskatchewan's as well. I could show up and. Do my spiel, but um, I need to let go of all that other stuff that makes it work, right? Makes it work. anyway. So there's that. Um, I yeah, that's it. Anyway, the, the pants off, Dexter. Okay, okay. So here's the story. I think it's really funny, but that story came and it's true. I was in Fairhaven Bowl. I, it was the summertime. I went into practice, and I'd be in my 20s, early 20s, probably, I don't know. And I looked up in the restaurant, and I saw this girl. And she was reasonably attractive. Um, anyway, I plopped my bag down. I opened up my shoe bag. <laughs> and, the, and the next thing I knew, I'd undone my belt, and my pants were down to my knees. And I, I looked down, and I said, what the hell is going on here? Anyway, so I pulled, 
<laughs> I put my pants on real quick and then just quietly left. <laughs> <laughs> Holy schmuckadoodles. I don't know. I was like, <laughs> Brain farts happen. Uh, anyway, that, our, that's a good one. So let's maybe leave that comment off. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tom, just to quickly, before we finish here, um, is there anybody taking over this, the bowling school? I don't know. Okay. I have no so idea. Know, yeah, you're I right. It's gonna, and I'm not, I'm not going to investigate if someone is, because I believe if I do that, what that does is kind of suggests that I'm ready to take on some more responsibility. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm not in that place. Mm-hmm. Do the people out there in Saskatchewan do they know that? Is this is this yes. breaking news or are they people they, yeah. they yeah. Anybody that anybody that was associated with our bowling school, they know they that. know. Awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank Anyone you for yeah. Thank you for all your years of doing oh, you've heavily influenced countless people in this game. So thank well, you for what you have thanks. done for the game. Thanks. Um, we'll have to Hey, well, we'll have I to find a, a new a new grandmaster. We'll have to find a new Dumbledore for <laughs> the bowling school. But were you at the bowling school, guys, when Doug Mosdell was there and did his um, Superman thing, Superman guy? No, no, that, I, that was before our time. I, I do yeah. remember. I saw the photo, though. Yeah. All right. Anyway, had a lot of good times happened that time. So, Robert Gallagher, so hot in here right now. I was actually. <laughs> yeah, nobody needs to know that, buddy. Nobody needs to know that. But, um, but. so I, I know it won't be the last time we'll see Tom helping out or being around. And so, but. Well, I am, Jim, I am coming to Calgary. Okay. I've registered to play in the tournament. I'm nice. curious. And Edmonton, yeah. Are you registered? Um, I, I, I was going to put that on the poster. I was going to say Tom Patterson, 2022 TPC participant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, we are planning to. I am planning to come, but I have two concerts on that same weekend. So, um, one of them is with uh, Brian Adams. But, okay. And I don't care if I go to Brian Adams. He's, he's coming to Edmonton to swap your tickets, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I've, I have set up my accommodation for both those tournaments. And awesome. To both. I'm, I'm just curious to see. I spent last year bowling for the first time in 11 years, and that was an adventure. Um, I, I remarkably, remarkable adventure. And then, <laughs> and then, of course, I joined up this year and I typically put in a lot of practice to there and all that razzmatazz, and I'm I'm curious to see if I can keep the ball on the way. You are. average two seventy, right, Tom? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, not that, yeah. it's not that hard. No, it's not. Well, bring a bunch <laughs> of books because if you want to get your book around the country, there's going to be people from all but, over. So it's a good opportunity for you to talk to Mark already, and I've got a Mark is helping me out in in putting it up there and letting people have a boo at it and if they're interested get one. So okay. 
gentlemen. Couple of key, I learned yeah. some key things today. The, the R's today: role play, refinement, and recovery. That was the, the, the my takeaways for you, Tom. Good, excellent, thanks. Yeah, recovery. Right. We'll talk to Dexter about that because he demonstrated recovery yeah. really well. Yeah. yeah, the next morning too. Different type of recovery. Okay, guys, we'll, we'll we'll leave it at that. Thanks All right. Again. Thanks, Tom. Thanks again, Thanks, Tom, guys. for coming on. Thank you. Uh, make sure really you look at his book, yeah. and we can't wait to see you at, at the tour stop in Calgary. Yeah, a couple weeks, we'll see you. Looking forward to it, Tom. Toodaloo. Take care. All right. Thanks, Thanks guys. for everything you've done, buddy. Okay. Mm. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye.